Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. As I mentioned before, my name is Scott, and I serve in this community as our parish pastor. And interestingly, last week, I actually was at our other parish in Kensington teaching there, which is something we do around Commons here fairly often where our main teaching voices sort of move around from time to time. And yes, during the summer, this happens because like many of you do in your careers, we as pastors, we also take some time off during these warmer months. So we, what we end up doing is as a team, we move around a little bit to help facilitate that. And what that means is that our team is well into our rest routine. While we are also getting ready furiously for the fall that's just around the corner, right? We just passed over August 2nd or 3rd and my kids all sort of groaned because they knew that was the halfway point. And I just like, it's been amazing and it's amazing yet to go in the future. Like, and yet we're still finding ways to be panicky about. Anyways, we're going to talk a little bit more about our future in the fall in a second. But with me gone last week, we actually had Kevin Hill up here last week. Those of you who were here and those of you who know Kevin, you might be aware that he's Super curious guy, super smart, high level training in historical theology, which if you don't know, is just the study of where theological ideas come from. And Kevin didn't really get into all of that because, well, he was trying to take us a little further on our journey through the Psalms instead of bragging about what makes him super smart and super interesting. And he did a super job of pointing to how the Psalms can be so helpful for us in these warmer months when maybe our schedule gets a little bit out of whack. Maybe we stay up a little later than we would normally because the sun's up. Maybe our kids get up too early because the sun's up. Some of us might be in and out of our everyday routines in different ways. Or maybe for you, your work slows down and this drives you nuts. Or maybe it picks up and that adds extra stress. Maybe your friends and your family are traveling and posting photos on Instagram and you're not and you feel as though you're alone. Maybe you are actually in a transition or you are facing some looming change that you didn't expect right now this summer. And whatever the case, last week we listened to the poet remind us that our lives are like a path that we walk. And the importance of pressing on in the direction that we know and we sense that God might be leading us, that's so important even when we feel overwhelmed or we feel like we're in a bit of a dry spell or that we are alone in that journey, which is what I hope you're able to do over these next few weeks before September comes rushing at us. Yes, I hope you'll rest. I hope you'll vacate if you can, but press on. Oh, I hope you'll do that too. And I hope you'll find the Psalms a helpful companion. If you haven't already done this, this week we're gonna talk more about using the Psalms here in a moment. I hope you'll choose to use the Psalms if you can in all these things that you're doing. The way that they invite you into a life of spiritual attentiveness, maybe that you're feeling beckoned towards. Or maybe they're bringing you towards practices of gratitude and reflection that you can take with you in the challenges that you are sure to face in the coming year. And this is a year that I'm getting excited about even as we rest and recuperate together. See, because I don't know if you know this, but our parish here in Inglewood is nearly 575 days old today. And that's true, but that's kind of just a random number. It's not like we're actually gonna keep track of that going on. And the point of that is that our parish is here. It's here in this neighborhood 
where it wasn't a couple years ago. And we meet and we pray and we worship and we serve and we press on towards what God's inviting us toward. And on that journey, friends, sometimes in my imagination, I feel like I can get up high and I can look back to where we started, which is kind of fun. But then I look ahead and yes, I'm captivated by the image of our first stampede breakfast here a month ago. And of course, I love the memories of our Easter celebration here with mini donuts in Inglewood. That was amazing. But I am challenged to look ahead. And I think of all the ways that we get together in groups, where we learn in conversation and we become friends and we learn to care for each other over time. And I'm challenged to think of the image of the way that many of us might eat together from time to time, where food and opinion and story are shared and where we all find our place and we're shaped as we share space with others. And I wonder, as summer has reached its zenith and we start thinking about the fall, or you don't have to yet, so don't worry about it, and we start thinking about the newness that might come to us in the year ahead, I wonder if you might feel the invitation to grow with us in this coming year by engaging in one of our groups or by hosting or attending one of our dinners or our brunches or our picnics. Literally, there's no way, or there's no end to the way that these things work out. Ultimately, I'm just thinking about the ways that we could step towards the path that you're on for sure, but I'm encouraging us to do it together with some of the people, yes, that we might see on Sunday, but then also making space for the new faces and the new people who join us along the way. Because here at Commons, we hope and aspire to be a network of parishes in the heart of this city. And while we are convinced that good teaching and meaningful worship and a little fun go a long way, we are so sure that the heart of community is in the connections that we make and the ones that we make room for. And so I'm so excited about this road that we're on together. And with that said, I think it's time that we get to work talking about mixtapes, enjambments, and the right kind of atheism in Psalm 14. But before we do that, join me in a quick prayer. God, of ancient poem and prose and of our lives spoken and unveiled each day, help us now as we quiet ourselves and we open up to sense you. And in a world that's marked by violence, even this week, we see more shootings, we see more people caught in moments that they will never ever forget. And we think of communities grieving and families grieving even today. And in some small way, as we bear witness to the mysterious love behind all things, we also bear witness to the sorrow and longing in our world and our words do fail us. And perhaps for some of us this week, we are left with a longing for peace, a longing for comfort, a longing for a clear mind in some part of our lives. And we're grateful that we're seen and known in this moment by our friends, by those who welcome us, but we trust that we are seen by you, seeking spirit. And we ask that you give us courage to trust your quiet work that's present to us. Where we are restless, bring peace. Where we are hurt, be present to us. Where we ache and we search and we whisper for help, be peace for us as we walk and teach us as we turn our eyes to you, O Christ, in whose name we hope and we pray. Amen.
All right, so this might be news for some of you, but those of you who have been around for at least two weeks of our summer series, you probably noticed how eclectic the Psalms are. This group of texts that we are spending time in this summer, how they incorporate all kinds of voices and perspectives. And this is a characteristic that has led one scholar of the Psalms to refer to them as being like a mixtape which I realize is a dated historical reference because we don't make tapes or CDs of random groups anymore, cobbling them together for our own listening pleasure. We don't have to do this because our music providers and our software actually come up with playlists of things that we might actually like that we haven't heard before, which is great, quick aside here, unless you happen to share your Apple Music account or your Spotify account with another human being as I do. And if you do, then you might end up as I did recently, maybe you're just commuting, you're innocently going for a walk, you're looking for something to listen to, and then Apple Music looks at you and accuses you and says, you recently listened to Taylor Swift. And you say, no, I didn't. And I actually panicked in that moment. I showed a shoulder check to make sure nobody could see my phone because here is my software turning my preferences into a kind of nightmare mixtape. And the point, and just for the record, I I, I figured it out. I have a 13-year-old daughter. She uses my other computer. It links in my account. So I got it all figured out, okay? I didn't actually. Anyways, I'm not insecure about Taylor Swift. I'm just telling you how it is. The point, the point is that the Psalms are a little bit like this, where you never quite know who the artist is, and you don't necessarily know what the poem's going to be about. Because one moment the poet will be encouraging us to be thankful because God's good, that's Psalm 136. And then in the next moment, the track changes and the poet's calling calling on God to murder some infants. That's Psalm 137, which we're gonna leave for today. And I wanna say a little bit more about this mixed up quality in a second, but first, Psalm 14. For today, that reads, for the director of music, a Psalm of David, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. And the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who see God. And all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though they're eating bread. And they never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers, you frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Now, There's a couple things to note about this poem right off the top. The first is that this is the only psalm that repeats in the entire collection. You can actually find this psalm more or less in the same form in Psalm 53 with just a few minor differences. And scholars sort of point to this as being an example of how this poem was probably used by different periods or different communities and different traditions in Hebrew history. That's why it shows up in a couple of places in the text. But the second thing to note is that this psalm is quoted in the Christian scriptures. And this isn't uncommon. The psalms are actually strewn all through the story of Jesus and the story of his earliest followers. Well, because they were Jewish. And the psalms were and still are at the core of Jewish community and Jewish worship. 
And the point is that Psalm 14 gets some significant airtime in Paul's letter to his friends in Rome. And there, Paul is arguing that people, in general, are awful. And to make his point, he starts pulling together this collection of quotes, mostly from the Psalms, and he says, look, everybody, regardless of their ethnicity or their background, they participate in making humanity the worst. And then he cites his sources. As it is written, Paul writes there, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And if you're listening closely, you probably recognize the first three verses from Psalm 14, which I just read to you a moment ago. But then Paul goes on pulling lines from all kinds of poems. He's painting this image of human experience. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Wow, you think Paul could have found something better than this, but on and on he goes. And if you look, and I've put a screenshot of this text up for you today, you can see how Paul's lifted lines from various places to build on this riff. And you can see these footnotes that I've circled for you there. And this is an important way to learn how to read your Bible, watching for these notes and paying attention to how authors pull references from other texts. But... Seeing this is also an important way to learn this observation about how we should read the Psalms and how they should inform our spiritual journey. Because Paul was using an ancient poem in his day, this ancient text for him, it was even, it's even older for us, and he's using it to build a theological argument for his context. He's piecing together some words and some ideas and some rhyme and some picture to build truth which is what you do when you pick up the Psalms and you let them become a narrator for your life, like Psalm 89 might, with echoes from a couple of weeks ago when it says, how long, O God, will your anger burn like fire for forever? Remember how fleeting my life is, the poet says. Or Psalm 94, that might express a place that you might have felt in your life. The poet says, when I felt, or when I said my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, it supported me. And when anxiety was great inside me, your consolation is what brought me joy. Or Psalm 118, which might frame this space that some of you may have come to in your life, where the poet says, when I was hard pressed, when I faced pressure in my life, I cried to God who brought me into a spacious place. And if God's with me, I don't need to be afraid. Now what's interesting is when you use the Psalms and you add them to other sayings and poetry and beauty, say, the writing of Christian Wyman, or the protest of Chance the Rapper, or the fiction of Margaret Atwood, or the biographies of a thousand interesting people. And when you collect these things, you might find, like Paul it seems, that you are building your faith. And that in some ways, that along the way, truth is actually building you. Pulling together this kind of theological mixtape this rhythmic combination of ways that you think of God and the way you think of yourself, the way that you look at the world, the way that you think of the many things that you're going through, even right now, and the ways that you are learning to tell this story well. So use the Psalms, 
my friends, in all this living that you're doing. Now, this text that we're looking at today actually gives us some tools for this storying work that we do in our lives. The ancient writer speaks of a fool who thinks there is no God, and we're gonna leave that for just a sec to come back to. And then the poet actually keeps describing the world as they see it. They say, oh, it's corrupt and it's full of malice. Everybody's failing to do good. And scholars debate, actually, whether this is a lament psalm, as the first one was in the series, with its references to how the poor are being victimized and the strong are being consumed by the weak, or the strong are consuming the weak. But then other scholars think that it might actually be more of a wisdom psalm or a saying because of how it seems to be encouraging a life of care for others. And whatever the case, this author paints a picture of humans who are up to no good. And then, and here's the translation of Robert Alter, the poet says that the Lord from the heavens looked down on the sons of humankind to see if there is someone discerning, someone seeking out God. What's interesting is that Alter notes that as we've talked about before in this series, Hebrew poetry has this tendency to use parallelism, which is just where it says one thing in one line and then repeats it with some reframing in the next line. And Alter notes that this poem we're reading today has almost no parallelism in it. How instead the poet today uses enjambments from line to line. And if you aren't already doing so, you're gonna wanna take notes so that you can repeat this at parties or in those awkward conversations in elevators with strangers. Because basically, here's what an enjambment is. An enjambment is a literary term that just refers to how poets continue sentences without pausing at the end of a line or stanza. It's how they use run-on sentences. And they don't do this because they're bad at grammar. They do this to catch us as readers by surprise, where meaning is held back until we drop into the next line. And lots of poets use this. In fact, there's a famous example. If you know what an enjambment is, if you learned about it in middle school, then you know the poem by a person named Langston Hughes, a poem entitled Harlem, which I'm gonna read to you. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up? like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? It's quite coy, and in this poem, Hughes is using enjambments to articulate this longing in 20th century America for equality, for the reviving of Harlem where he lived and for the promise of America. And he named prophetically the violence that would emerge in response to how long those things have been in coming. And in fact, they are still coming. And Hughes actually experienced this violence in the riots of Harlem in 1943 and 1964. And the point is just that poets like Hughes use this device to keep us reading and then to shock us with their imagery. And this is why Alter's observation of enjambment in Psalm 14, I think is so provocative. See, because the Hebrew syntax in this poem actually draws our eye downward, mirroring the divine gaze. The text says, the Lord looked down on humankind to see. And don't forget that the poets told us that there's someone who thinks there is no God, to which this artist seems to be providing an alternative image, one in which we're invited to picture God looking down on us and all we do, but that's not where it ends, because the poet shows us that what God sees 
is us at our worst. We're all turned astray is the language in the Hebrew. And in hiking terms, this just means that we are all off the path, we are off the grid, we are all lost. And the poet names in us what we already know, that off the path we have a propensity to wound and to injure and to devour each other. And the picture is not a good one. But this is where the enjambments pay off. Because remember, the poets painted this picture of God up high, looking down, searching, and we keep reading line after line, hoping that the story changes and all we find is more darkness. Until the poet names how those who are doing their worst to others, how those people are overwhelmed with fear, how they're in the middle of the very place of their violence and their vice, they are afraid because God is with the company of the righteous, the poet tells us. And of course, the force of anticipation as we've read this poem has kept us reading from line to line. We've been looking for God. We, up to a point we may have thought that the person who says there is no God may have a leg to stand on because God's nowhere in the poem. And the poet just strings us along and we descend from the heights of heaven into the very nuts and bolts of human experience with people being consumed. People being shot when they go to Walmart. And God nowhere to be found. Until we sing at this, string, at this end of a string of sentences that God is with the righteous band. That's how Alter translates this phrase. And in this moment, the most important thing for us to pay attention to is not how this poem fits a Hebrew imagination of God or how it might fit in an unpacking of Hebrew history, but instead I think that we need to hear an invitation to read our own lives with a commitment to using enjambments. And what do I mean? Well, maybe for you it's found in the record of maybe some difficult things that you experienced as a child, or maybe you lived through some poor choices you made when you were a young person and you've done the work to name those things and know them and process them, and now you sense that your life is starting a new line, where you're starting to believe that your story has actually continued to unfold and that you aren't captive to the earlier lines in your story. Or maybe for you it's in some attempts that you've made to grow or to start a venture or to start a new career, to start a new relationship or seek newness in some way. And it always happens this way that these attempts have a way of falling flat on their face for us and they leave us to pick up the pieces. Maybe for you recently you found that your story may have been marked by those painful experiences but now it's dropped a line where you're learning to see and trust that the poetry of your life has continued to unfold and you're finding courage to seek the best things again. Or maybe for somebody here, it's in the fact that your faith seems to have faded and the questions that you have about God, quite rightly, have been drowned out or they've been drowning out the answers that you've been able to find and you have come time and time again to a place where maybe you just think that I can't believe I just don't seem to be cut out for it. I'm not gonna be a devout person and I can't seem to face this vice or this problem in this place of solitude that I find myself in and yet here you are today. Your story picking up yet another whimsical line with an ancient poet encouraging you to keep reading on 
into your spiritual journey. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that if you just keep moving, that everything's gonna turn out. That would not be honest. What I am saying is that the poets of the Psalms are worth listening to because they name the ways that the divine can show up in places that we don't expect it to. And that challenges us to imagine, even in the ways that these ancient poets put their sentences together, that the worst of your experience is not the end of the story, but in fact, that if your life is beautiful at all, it's because it nudges you from darkness and mistake into the next line, where grace is present in the company of those who know they need it. Which brings us to the beginning of the poem, which might seem a little counterintuitive, but it's not, because this whole piece hinges on knowing what the poet's proposing here, where they say, the fool says in their heart, there is no God, which I imagine has encouraged some people in the past to make this a poem about atheism, and then in turn to lead other people to write sermons about atheism while they trumpet the wisdom of philosophical and existential belief in God. And the problem is that this isn't a poem about atheism, which is why this isn't a sermon about atheism. But here is what I will say that I think there are many healthy and helpful ideas proposed by atheists about God's existence. Some that I believe can't be intellectually refuted. While there are many other ideas that these people propose that I openly admit that I don't find convincing in the way that I wanna live in the world. And the point is that I'm a theist, but that doesn't mean that somehow I'm wise and that my atheist friend is a fool. That's not what we're talking about because that's not what the poet's inferring. The Hebrew term for fool here, this word nebal, it's not a reference to someone who lacks intelligence or is stupid, someone that should be belittled for being that way. No, it refers to a person who has no perception of or makes no consideration for ethical claims. And what does a person like that look like? Well, I, I think it looks like the person who says, I can do what I want. I can believe and say whatever I want. I can treat others how I want. Which is a perspective that goes against the very core of the Hebrew scriptures where in Torah, God imagines a people, a community that is more just and more equitable and more fair and then in the wisdom literature, God comes along and instructs those people in that community on the means of honest and generous living. And then in the prophets, we see in Hebrew history how men and women came time and time again to remind God's people of what kind of community they were supposed to be building in the world. And this is why, as Walter Brueggemann notes, the, human, the, human, the Hebrew practice of lament, like we see in this poem, is never there merely as a religious gesture, but as an important and direct link to social processes. Or put another way, how in a Hebrew imagination of the world, as Carlene Mandolfo says, the poetry of the Hebrew Bible is all about the immediacy of experience. It's not about systemizing ideas. See, because the Hebrew poet realized that the most dangerous people in the world are not those who contend there's no scientific evidence for God's existence. No, it's the practical and the functional atheist that we should be wary of. 
the person who speaks of God being full of love and yet fears their neighbor from another culture. The person who thinks that their power and their history, their position, their faith gives them permission to abuse other people or forget other people or act as though their actions don't impact other people. The person who has resources and yet frustrates the plans of the poor, the poet tells us today. Which is why in a world where it's easy for any of us to say one thing and do another, to be moral with our mouths and our social media posts and then be immoral in the way that we live. In a world where today religious tradition and text are being used to oppose those who are actually at risk. In a world where people speak of God in ways that don't look at all like Jesus. Perhaps it is only right in a world like this that you have come to a place where you realize that you can't believe in a God like that. Maybe you've suffered some pain or some rejection in your story because you were labeled different or you were labeled difficult. Maybe because you wanted people to be included, maybe because you wanted some victims to be safe, you wanted the world to be more like it's imagined in the scriptures. And today, the poet speaks for you and reassures you that refusing to believe in a God that rejects or marginalizes or pushes away, that does not make you a fool but that in fact, this is the right kind of atheism. While in the same breath, the poet invites us to take up the work and the poetry of finding God present in the details of our world and especially with those in need, telling stories in which if God exists at all, it's as a refuge for those who are far from home. So, may you take up the Psalms this week and along with the other poets and the other artists, these other voices you use to construct a beautiful life, may you compose a faith that sparks life in you and in those around you. May you learn to read your life as riddled with divine enjambments marked by the poetry of grace in which sorrow and difficulty and darkness always hold the promise of a new line. And may you sense the courage to live as though there is no God who doesn't welcome and restore and transform everyone and anyone's story. Let's pray. God. We are present to your mysterious work in community and your mysterious work in our hearts today. And we're grateful for the way in which we're drawn towards that. And maybe for uh, some of us today, that's, that's a new experience. We're not quite sure what to do with it. And I pray that you just give us courage to trust your kindness towards us, to lean towards that warmth that invitation that you offer us in this space, in this moment. And I pray that you would help each and every one of us as we learn to shape our story of faith, that we learn to do that well. And I pray that even this week that you would lead us both with the Psalms and then in just in our everyday working that you would lead us to voices and to images that stir us, give us life that we can share with others. I pray too that you would help us as we learn to trust that the truths that you speak over us 
are ever and always evolving and coming toward us. And maybe for somebody here today, it feels like we're stuck in a line that we can't get out of. Maybe some of us feel like we're in a part of our story that we wish there would be a scene change. Maybe some of us don't know what the next page holds. I pray that your peace would come and be near to us in each of those spaces, helping us to trust your kindness again. And I ask finally that you would help us as as a community, but then as people, we learn to let go of theology that we know has been harmful and instead learn to embrace your work that is rebuilding us and rebuilding the people around us. For the sake of a better world, for the sake of your goodness, that you would be known. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.